discussion over dinner. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Cause I don't want to be a stranger to find hope with you, to grow. about educa elementary education and the state of elementary education in LaPorte County. And I want to make sure that you know that we have a couple more live discussion over dinners in a row. Oh. I'm going to need you to go sit in the back of the class now. Deal. No. Um, so uh, we have a couple fun conversations coming up and important what I think uh, to our community. Now next month, because it is Black History Month and, and a couple of different other things, we're going to have a conversation on race in LaPorte County. And then in March, we're going to have a conversation on the intermediate school here in LaPorte. <laughs> Uh, lot, lots of things are changing in LaPorte education there. We're putting the fifth grade from elementary into our, what is a middle school? And we're going to have a conversation about middle school education, uh, kind of how middle schoolers are, because I don't understand middle schoolers at all. And hopefully we'll, we'll be able to uh, understand what the school system's doing, but also understand middle school education a little bit more. And so I hope you can come to that uh, in, in February and March. We'll take a month off in, in April. We've got Easter and all kinds of stuff here at State Street. Um, but please do uh, make plans on attending these events and invite your friends. And uh, for everyone streaming with us today, thank you so much for streaming. If you want to share the stream on your Facebook, you're welcome to do that as well. Um, today we've got a great panel of uh, friends for me, but also experts in the community on education matters. Uh, different uh, careers, different experiences, but I think they'll be able to um, educate us on the state of elementary education in LaPorte County. So I'm going to introduce our panel to you um, now. He grew up in South Bend, Indiana. After graduating from Washington High School in the South Bend Community School Corporation, he majored in business administration from Ball State Without a teaching license, he was hired to teach a fifth grade elementary class at Rolling Prairie Elementary School, a position he held until his retirement in 2012. In his time as an educator, he coached more than 100 teams, developed a three-mile environmental trail, and started a tutoring program that met each morning with 8 to 12 low-performing students. In the five years of this program, every student that attended the tutoring program regularly passed the I-STEP exam at the end of the year. For his roles in building the Three Mile Environmental Trail, he was recognized as a county, state, and national teacher of the year. After retiring as an educator, he and his partner in education and wife, Jane, helped create and manage the Jackson Street Community Garden in the Brighton Street Green Space in downtown LaPorte, Indiana. Will you please welcome uh, our first panelist, John Slater. She was born in Oregon, and she will tell you, and lived there for 21 years. She began her college career at Oregon State, but 
saw the error of her ways and finished a degree in elementary education with a kindergarten and reading endorsement from Indiana University. She taught preschool for four years before moving to kindergarten at Rolling Prairie Elementary, go Bulldogs, where she has been teaching for 17 years. At Rolling Prairie, she is a member of the crisis team, CPI trained, the RTL co-chairperson, student, RTI, sorry, uh, student council co-sponsor and teaches at the after-school program, Bulldog Club. Outside of school, she works with youth through LaPorte County 4-H and the Goat Club of LaPorte County. She lives in Rolling Prairie on a small farm with her husband, Tony, of 27 years, along with her three daughters, one adorable granddaughter, one son-in-law, uh, one adorable son-in-law, <laughs> one soon-to-be son-in-law, and more animals than she can count. Please welcome to our panel, our second panelist, Chrissy Sermon. He was born and raised in LaPorte, Indiana, and still resides here with his wife of 14 years and their three lovely daughters. He graduated from the Bethel College with a bachelor's degree in elementary education and earned his master's degree in educational leadership from Indiana University Northwest. He is currently in his third year as principal of Pine Elementary School in Michigan City, Indiana. This year is his eighth year with the district, previously teaching and serving as an instructional coach. Before his time in Michigan City, he spent nine years teaching in the Gary Community School Corporation. All of his experience has been in elementary education. Please welcome to our panel, our final panelist, Zach Huber. So thank you so much for being here, guys. Uh, and you can pick up your microphones. We're going to ask lots of questions. I want to encourage everyone here. Um, you can text the phone, uh, phone number here if you have questions. Um, if you have our app, the State Street Community Church app downloaded, you can uh, go through the app as well. And there's a, you can click through there and you can see all their bios and all kinds of fun stuff there um, and uh, be able to connect uh, for a question through that as well. So um, let's start with this. Chrissy Surma. Yes. Is this on? First yes. of all, giving me a microphone is living life dangerously for you. I'm just telling you that ahead of time. <laughs> I promise you, you won't, you won't do any more damage to me than I do to myself most Sundays. Okay, I'm ready. So, Chrissy, you've been teaching for, what, 17 years? It's my 18th. This year is my 18th. What made you get into teaching? Um, you know what? My mom, my mom did. She was a preschool teacher for quite a few years, and I just saw the joy that she had doing it, and I loved working with kids. It is amazing because every day is new. Every single day is new. And why would you not want to go somewhere where every day they tell you you're beautiful and they love you? That changes like, in fifth grade. Yeah, yeah. I teach kindergarten. That's not my experience as a pastor of this church, by the way. <laughs> no, it's great. You get to see, you really literally get to see the future in their eyes and the way they're thinking. You get to see them grow. It's just amazing. Amazing. Zach, what, got, what made you get into teaching? Um, I, I honestly don't know for sure. Um, I was around kids a lot, really enjoyed and, and loved that sort of thing. I a cadet taught in high school and then sort of that solidified this love for uh, watching kids grow and learn and, um, and, and excuse me and the joy that came with that so I think it wasn't an always thing it sort of crept up on me uh, in my high school years 
Now, John here is uh, a former, my former teacher, actually, uh, and a legend at Rolling Prairie Elementary School. Um, uh, most kids that went through Rolling Prairie Elementary wanted to have John Slater as their teacher. And so when he retired, I know a lot of people mourned that loss because he was such a great and uh, great teacher in fifth grade, but also just a consistent presence at the school. But John, you have a very interesting story. You didn't major in elementary education, did you? I did not. How did you get into teaching? Uh, well, it wasn't my mother. It, <laughs> it, believe it or not, it was my dentist. Really? <laughs> yes. It was the Vietnam War was going on. I couldn't get a job. Um, I had a high draft number, and in those days you could discriminate. You didn't have to hire someone, and you could say, well, come back and see me after you go to Vietnam. And I was talking to my dentist about it, and he said, you know, I saw that there was an opening at uh, Rolling Prairie School in LaVille, and he said, you know what, I think you would uh, be pretty good at it. And actually, I had worked at the park department for three years in the summer, and I'd had his son, so there was some connection. I'm like, really? So I thought, oh, this will be fun. So I went and applied, not thinking I would get the job. And lo and behold, I got the job. <laughs> and um, I, I have to confess, the first year was really rough. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, I'm not sure why they kept me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So it was a process. It took a long time to um, get there. And that was back before you, you didn't have to have a teaching license to become a teacher? <laughs> So this is a funny story, too. No, you didn't have to have a license, and I had to get a permit each year. And the idea was you're on a permit, and then uh, at the end of the year, they would hire someone that actually had a license to uh, teach. So the principal, for whatever reason, liked me. And he said, you know what? you got to resign, uh, but we'll hire you back the next year. This went on for nine years until I got everything I needed to be licensed as an elementary teacher. So I didn't think anything about it. And then we had Mr. Harding come in as a superintendent about 20 years later, and he was going through the personnel files. And he called me up and he said, John, I have never seen a file so crazy in my life. And I said, well, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you resigned nine years in a row, and then you came back. What in the world is going on? So. <laughs> and uh, it, it is true, John was my teacher. He was also my mother's teacher. Um, and there's rumors that he was my grandfather's teacher as well. Um, the, the, unfortunately, the data doesn't go back that far. So no, I'm just kidding. Uh, John, a, a interesting story for you that um, John and Jane, I got to, I lost connection with for many years. And uh, I always loved John as a teacher, one of the most, you know, uh, probably had one of the biggest impacts as an educator in my life. And when we uh, reconnected seven years ago, um, it was uh, over a, a garden, actually. John wanted to spend some time in, in his retirement helping kids learn how to garden. And John's been doing uh, an amazing job, John and Jane and Joe and uh, all of our volunteers for that, but doing an amazing job teaching kids how, how to garden, but also just life skills, how, how, how to be human, um, how to get along, uh, how to find something you're passionate about and, and stick to that goal and, and, and move on. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you're here, John, and I, I value you so much. Um, Chrissy, you started teaching and is your 18th year. I'm gonna guess lots has changed since then. <laughs> 
in the students, in the schools. What are some of the things that have changed the most for you? Well, for me, one thing, we used to be half-day kindergarten, and now it's all-day kindergarten. So those little five-year-olds had to learn how to be there all day long instead of half-day and go home and take a nap. So um, that was a big change, but we've handled it, and we've been doing that for 10, 11 years now, all-day kindergarten, so that was a big one. Technology, hello. Uh, when I first started, and John can tell you, we had these huge desktop computers for teachers that still had the discs. Did you play Oregon Trail on them? <laughs> Tony used to play it all the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, my husband had Mr. Slater as a teacher as well. Your son-in-law. My son-in-law. Your daughter. My two oldest daughters. <laughs> the youngest one won't have him unless he's coming back. <laughs> um, but technology, the attitudes, attitudes of parents, attitudes of kids has changed greatly in these years, um, expectations. Kindergarten is now first grade, first grade is now second grade, um, has greatly changed. The responsibilities that we have, even more so. So kids have to learn more at an earlier age yes. than they did before. Yes, um, Do you find then that parental involvement then has increased? Because I imagine that you know needing to educate kids, or is that one of the major hurdles that you have? Then? Parental involvement has decreased. Um, before we would have parent helpers all the time in our rooms, everything. Most parents are all both working. So we don't have that. Um, are busy. They just are busy, busy, busy. And so it's a lot of it is just put on us. There's not... We, you have great parents that do. There's a lot of parents that are involved, but we have more and more that are not involved like they used to be. Zach, uh, many people here are from LaPorte. They might not know about Pine Elementary in Michigan City. Tell us a little bit about your school. So um, Pine is a, a, a fine arts magnet school. It's not really a magnet. Um, it functions sort of differently. We have about 465 students, and we take our, our boundary kids first. Um, so... It's about 80-ish percent free and reduced lunch. It changes about every day. Um, it's maybe 40, it hovers around 40% white, 30% black, um, multi and Hispanic make up the rest uh, for the most part. Um, we house two sections of students with moderate and severe disabilities. Um, and so we have uh, that program in our building. Um, so that's the, the arts part of it. We take all of the boundary kids, and then the, the magnet part says if we have room left over, there's a lottery. So we take kids to do um, certain um, arts integration activities. Um, we, have, we have that integration with our curriculum, but then there's also extra funding for um, at lots of after-school programs. So we do um, piano and violin. We have theater. We have dance, um, those sorts of things. So they've invested in the arts at the school. Um, so that's something different about uh, what Pine is in Michigan City. And you've been a principal for two or three years? This is my third. Third year. Um, so you're finding your groove now, right? Trying. Okay. Yeah, what, what, are, what are some of the biggest hurdles? Because I feel like each school has their own challenges typically. What are some of your biggest hurdles at Pine? Yeah, so um, sort of logistically, we turn over almost 50% of our kids every year. So I think last year was hovered right around 40, a little bit more than 40%. What, what so, does that mean, turnover? So um, next year I'll have basically half of my school be brand new kids. So uh, the transiency is 
since December of this year, we've done about 36 new students in. I don't know what the, the outs are, but so we're, we're sort of constantly turning over students. Um, we pull, we have the homeless shelters, some of the homeless shelters, we, we pull those students, we pull from the prison neighborhoods, so that turns over quite a bit, and then it's west side neighborhood, so, so it's sort of this cycle of families that come through. So I think one of the biggest hurdles of you if, um, is that, on top of it, it's poverty. You know, when you're talking about 80-ish percent free and reduced lunch, you have all these kids that are moving in and out, and, and they're also living in poverty. Um, and so it becomes just sort of difficult to gain traction with students and families when that cycle's happening. So John, you, you taught for 40, how many years? 40 couple? Do the math. Okay, I'm not doing the math. <laughs> 43. That's why I became a pastor. Um, <laughs> What, what were some of the biggest things that changed from the time that you, I mean, obviously quite a bit, but at the end there, I mean, what, what were you seeing that was really, I guess, problematic for you in the changes? Do you know what I mean? Well, um, one of the changes, obviously, is when I taught your grandfather, it was a one-room schoolhouse. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so along with Chrissy, most of the same answers, but there's a couple of things I want to go back to really... Uh, one of the things that I've really noticed is um, I'm with Chrissy. Most of the parents are not involved, but there's a certain segment of the parents, the helicopter parents, and they're involved in every. Not loud enough. I think they turned you off because you kept on hitting the mic, the, the table. So, so you can turn him back on. He's promised not to hit the table with his microphone. Or, or the guy next to him. Or me. Well, you can hit me. That's fine. It doesn't make as much Sorry noise. about that. I, I, can, I can hear it. So um, the helicopter parents on the other side want to know everything and are there all the time and won't let their kids grow up. So there's that problem, too. And that's something I didn't see at all when I first started teaching. And it seemed to be getting, at least in the fifth grade, worse each year. The other thing, and I mentioned about kids and how they've changed, and it's, there's a good thing and a bad thing about it, um, they're getting bigger. And um, I really like basketball and volleyball, so that's a really good thing. Uh, on the other hand, the really problem is they're getting bigger. There's an awful lot of children that are very, very overweight. Um, and it seems to be an incredible problem, and there's so many reasons why. Technology being one of them, lack of gym class. At our school we did away with sports, there's just all kinds of issues. Do you want me to tell them the walking story? We, yeah. have, we have sports again. Yeah, I know sports is, <laughs> sports is back. In fact, Janie and I were so dedicated to sports that we actually coached sports when there wasn't sports at Rolling Prairie. Yes, they did. <laughs> so tell, yeah, tell that story so, about your walking. Yeah, so I decided, you know, you can talk about it, but you should do something about it. And Janie, my wife, was my uh, unpaid aide. So we talk about all of our situations, and we realized that our um, kids were in really, really bad shape. So we decided to uh, take them on a walk every day. And so we would pick them up right after lunch recess. We really weren't wasting any time. And there was a trail behind the school that was a half mile long. And I thought, man, we'll pick those kids up, we'll walk them around that trail, and we'll get a half mile every, every day. And actually, we had one of the years we had uh, Route 66. Our goal was to walk 2,448 miles so that, am I coming through or not? No, you're good. Okay. You're great. So that um, it was sort of a goal to get that mileage for the whole group of kids. And we had to walk every day, no matter what, unless it was raining and lightning. 
And so to the story, you would not believe how many notes I got from parents that their kid could not walk that distance. Doctor excuses, go to the office to get inhalers, protesting to me, and I'm like, kids, I would have died for a teacher to take me out for a walk. You're not in class, man. <laughs> so, and I could see it really was straining them. You'd look at them, and this was August and September when we started, sweats rolling down their face, they're complaining. But lo and behold, after about um, two months of walking, we could start to see a little bit of conditioning. And the kids started to like the walking and really enjoyed it, starting to walk or talk along with the uh, walking. And by the end of the year, they were in so much better shape. And just little things like that make an amazing difference. Hey, hey Nate, can I jump yeah. in? You were asking about changes. I think one of the largest shifts that I've seen um, and Michelle Borba synthesizes the research on this. She says basically over the past few decades that there's been about a 40% increase in narcissism among students. And in that same time, there's been that same decrease in empathy. So we get this gap in more narcissistic, less, less empathetic students. I think when you add on top of that screen time, so the average eight to 10 year old, it's six hours, 11 to 14, it's nine hours a day daily. So you put those two things together and you have narcissistic, non-empathetic kids that don't know how to socialize. So they, they can't play together. They, they don't know how to, to collaborate with each other. They, they have no imagination. You know, all that stuff sort of goes by the wayside. Um, even the studies on children's books now, all, when they run the, the word counts through those, it's more eyes and me's than ever before. So, so the study on sort of, you know, you have these kids, it's all about me, narcissism, and it's less about everybody else. And on top of that, I don't know how to negotiate conversations and you're in a school setting where you have to do that all day, I think there, there comes this sort of big problem with um, kids' ability to interact with each other, with adults. Um, and so I think that's a, a big shift that's happened and a big problem in schools. Do you see the same thing? So, yes, and I wanted to yes. go back to a couple things. Rolling Prairie, even though everything sits a nice country school, and it is a wonderful country school. It's a beautiful, I mean, I wouldn't, my, our kids went there, I teach there, I love it. We are over 50% free and reduced at Rolling Prairie. We have a 20% ELL population, and we have in and out uh, quick, all the time. ELL? English language learners. English, English language learners. So we have 20%. We have transient. We have uh, migrant farmers. And so we deal with the same in and out, in and out, in and out. And, so, and, when people, and we have five, over, 500, over 500 kids in our school of K through 5. So people think we're not big. We're enormous. We're absolutely enormous. And I see the same thing. So in kindergarten, we changed some things this year. My kids have to greet each other at the door every morning. I have one of my students, and it rotates around, every different student every day, and they have to shake hands, look each other in the eye, and say, good morning, how are you? Because they do not know how to socialize. Mm -hmm. They do not know how to problem solve. I, uh, because nobody is teaching them these things anymore. I had one just two days ago say, I can't see. But he just sat there like this. And I said, what could you do to solve that problem? Move my chair. <laughs> yeah, good job. Kiss your brain. That's a great answer. Move your chair. And, um, but they don't know. They don't know how to do that social. So we also have, we are a one-to-one -one school corporation, which means everybody has a, some kind of technology. We all have iPads in New Prairie. Um, they are, my kindergartners, all three kindergarten classes, are only on those iPads 
during the day for about a half hour total. And that's 15 minutes in the morning and about 15 minutes in the afternoon. That's it. The rest is movement, differentiated instruction, some paper pencil because I got to see them right. Um, but we're moving and we're grooving. We also have added in a social interaction playtime because they don't know how to play with each other anymore or people or even how to be empathetic. So we constantly say every day, I am kind, you are kind, we are kind. So this is really interesting to me because we've been talking about this at our, my kids' elementary and trying to figure out, right, it, it's not just teaching math, it's not just teaching, you know, um, spelling in English. We're, we're talking about teaching like virtue and teaching um, social skills and things like that. But how do you program that stuff, Zach, as a principal and an administrator? You program that stuff. How do you do that? You program that stuff. <laughs> I mean, you have to, because here's what happens. I mean, I think largely, and this is generalization for sure, um, it's middle-class white America teaching um, sort of diverse, not middle-class America. And so there's this, there's this gap in understanding of um, you should be able to be respectful because I said so or be, because that's the way I was raised. And so there's this gap in understanding of actually that student doesn't have any idea how to be respectful unless you explicitly teach them. And so for, on the teacher side, it's understanding that those students actually have to be explicitly taught how to look somebody in the eye, how to shake their hand, how to sit in a seat, how to walk in a hall. And, and, and so, again, I think it, the middle class sort of mentality on that, and that's largely what the teaching population is, thinks kids should just be able to do it. And so there's an understanding on the, we have to build the capacity of the teachers to, to, to say, if you want them to do it, you have to teach it explicitly. Um, and so that's, for us in our building, it's that conversation and that training and that expectation all the time. Um, the kids doing, those behaviors are happening because we haven't explicitly taught a different behavior. And so that understanding is really difficult for adults. And once, once you can understand that, then obviously it translates into the students. So I think there's sort of that progression through um, from teachers to students. So we hear um, a lot about this idea of common core. What is common core? It's the new, it's not new really anymore. It's, it's, sta it's the state standards. Well, Indiana has different standards of Common Core. They're basically the exact same, but Indiana wanted to be slightly different. So it's the standards that we, that students are assessed on right now, um, third to 12th grade basically, but it's going to trickle down to kindergarten, I'm sorry, probably next year. We, we already do what's called the NWEA, which is just a preemptive to it. Well, so why the change in standards? The, the, the biggest shift in the standard now, it's, um, it's more um, processing and reasoning skills are being taught and assessed. So even now on the new iLearn, which will be brand new this year, um, you could get the math wrong on a test, but if your reasoning is right, you're going to get equal credit. So the value is in problem solving and reasoning as much as it is actual content. So, um, so that's, that's the shift. I think largely because the jobs that those kids are going to have don't even exist yet. And so before you could prepare for what the job market was going to be, you can't necessarily do that now. So, the, so students have to have the ability to process and reason to, to get the jobs that, they're, that are necessary when they graduate. John, um, did you then, 
you know, um, did you see a lot of this when you were teaching as well, kids not knowing social, emotional things, and did you have to teach that, or is that something that they're experiencing now that you didn't necessarily in your career? Um, certainly it was getting worse each year, and um, um, we tried to do some things that would help. I don't think I really had a curriculum as such as you're talking about, but involving... When I, the last five, six years of teaching, maybe the last 10 years of teaching, started in going to much more activity-based, uh, even in math class, uh, to get kids to work together, to get kids to um, interact with each other, uh, to get kids to solve problems and things together. Um, so uh, the narcissism you were talking about is an obvious thing that's really come up in the last 10 years, would you say? And do we do we know do we is it I mean is there a connection to to technology why why the increase in narcissism I mean is there is there any Zach you're pretty uh, you stay on data pretty closely is there is there any connection that they know yet or is there what are you seeing I mean they, you can you can read a lot of different um, sort of research on this. A lot of it, sure, it's social media driven. Um, it's the it's the selfie culture, and so a lot of that sort of is pervasive. In it's sort of trickled down to you know our our you know seven eight nine year olds are carrying phones at school, and, and that's happening at that level. So um, so I think there's certainly a connection in in that sort of way. I think just the way society functions, and that's a you know much larger conversation. I think it's gone to that mentality for adults as much as it has for kids. It's just a trickle-down kind of thing. We're just more narcissistic as a culture, and our kids have... Yeah, okay. Um, and we'll get to your questions here in a second, but I do want to talk about something, because this is... You, you may have seen it in the news if you've been paying attention to what is happening. Obviously, we just started a new legislative year here in the state of Indiana, and we've got one of our uh, our reps here, uh, Jim Presso. Thanks for being here, Jim. But uh, Jim and his uh, uh, fellow uh, state reps and state senators are just now starting a new legislative season. And one of the things that they've been talking about is teacher pay and education reform. Um, I, don't, I didn't know this, and maybe some of you guys do, but you guys, um, educators, now Zach, you're not in this because you're a principal now, but you were an educator before a principal. You guys get incentive pay at certain things. Um, only if there's money. Uh, you can still, you can, you want to get like a highly effective score on your stages. And if there's some money, then you can get what's called a bonus. Yeah, you get so to wear jeans on Friday. <laughs> That's our bonus. We love it. Um, you get a bonus. But only if there's money. Only if there's extra money. So it's not a guarantee. Does the state give you that money or does the school system give you that money? The state. And so you never know how much it's going to be. Does every school get the same amount of money? No. So how do they determine who gets the money? Good question. If you live in Indianapolis or Carmel, you do very well. <laughs> <laughs> I did just ask a teacher right before what that was, bonus. I had a highly effective, a highly effective teacher in my building. It's like 500 so that's and, what and it was last year. And it's, Again, yeah, it's year to and year. And it's taxed at was. a higher rate because it's considered bonus. So you only get about 50% of it. So um, I, did some, I did some research um, on this. 
on the merit bonuses. And uh, as Chrissy says, last year, educators in Carmel received a $2,422 bonus. Mine was 700 and I'm highly effective. And Zach, your highly effective teacher at Pine received what? $534. Don't tell my husband. I, he's not listening. We're fine. Um, and I, 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 in this article I was reading, one of the schools in Indianapolis that's a high poverty school, their teachers got $42. 42. Um, what does that do, Zach, for you as an administrator? How, how to attract quality teachers when you could go to a, a school in a more affluent area and get, I mean, that's a fairly significant difference, $2,400 compared to $40. Do you think that's a pretty serious problem? I mean, to me, it seems like it. Yeah, I think, um, so sort of the problem is just attracting educators in general. You know, I have eight brand new teachers just this year in my building. Statistically, in five years, half of them will be gone. Um, that's sort of the, that's the, the rate Indian of turnover. not real good at this anyway. Right? We're, we're not a good state at keeping teachers. Yeah, yeah right. So, I mean, I, it, it really, honestly, um, it's people that want to be in that situation. I mean, I'm drawing into a higher poverty sort of difficult situation. And so you're just upfront about that. If you're called into that sort of area, then you're going to come in and, and fit in really well here. And so that's the attraction is you just really have to have this desire to do it. Because you can't. You, you, so to me, and this is just me, I know I'm, I'm on an island here, but it seems to me that schools that are in higher poverty areas um, might have more issues because of poverty, because of all these kind of things, just um, in trying to help children have you know, um, some stability, these kind of things. And it seems to me then that the class sizes ought to be smaller in there because you have to have more specialized care for each student. But that is not the case, though, right? Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, ours fluctuate year to year, but it's mid-20s. Right now, sixth grade is 30. So um, You have a class grades, of 30 kids? Sure. I have two, two sections. They each have 30. Fifth grade's mid to high 20s does right now. Teacher, it changes every day. Does each so. teacher have an aide? No. Is there any aids? So there's our Title I dollars pay for instructional assistance. So there are, there are seven, right now six, but hopefully hiring a seventh instructional assistant. So they're, they have other responsibilities than just in the classroom too. So they're sort of the breakfast duty, the lunch duty, recess duty, but they also are pulling groups of students um, to do intervention work. But they're, they're, um, there's, I think I have 31 classroom teachers in the building. So with the seven of them, they're not assigned. I mean, they're, it just doesn't work out to assign them to a classroom. They're, they're largely pulling students for interventions. That's what we have as well. We're a full Title I school as well. And we have instructional assistants through Title I. Not every teacher has their own. It's usually one shared between all the grades. Kindergarten and first are fortunate to have a couple extra just because we have those little people. But our fifth grade is 30, usually around 30 people, 30 kids. And um, I'm 25, all of our kindergartens are 25 each this year. Sometimes we go to four sections, and then we usually have about 22 when we have four sections of kindergarten. But he's in the 20s, 20 to high 20s. And I was looking, uh, John uh, very graciously gave me a yearbook from when I was in fifth grade that he had. Um, and I was looking there, and that was one of the things I noticed, John, was the class sizes were a little bit smaller back then, actually. Um, I mean, they, they were still 20, but they weren't 30. Um, 
Did you see that in your um, career, just increasing class sizes or? Well, that's a hard question to answer. We had uh, teacher negotiations on class size. I don't know. Is that sort of fizzled now with the unions? Or? Yeah, the only thing we can negotiate is our pay. That's what I thought. <laughs> so I'm seven years out. So we did have negotiated a class size, and it was very reasonable. But when I first started teaching, I had some classes. This had been in the 70s. I had some classes, uh, middle 30s. Wow. And uh, there's a big difference, right? Between oh, there's a huge difference. And in fact, our school now... The classroom, I think, is really built, I would think I was told, for 24, because there's 24 lockers, the lockers are in the room. Uh, and boy, if you start putting 30 into the classroom, it becomes very difficult to get around. And so, John, um, what, what teacher pay, right? This has been a thing for quite some time. You're retired now. You don't have to negotiate your salary anymore, except with me, and I, I don't pay you anything. Um, the same as the state. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> what are some of the things that you saw as an educator that you, about teacher pay, did you get raises often? Did you, you know, what, what, what did you see? Um, in, the set, in the middle 70s to about 2,000 teacher, teacher pay, and of course, I was on an increment system, which means you automatically got a certain amount of raise, not a big raise, but... What are you talking, 2% maybe? Seven, $800, depending okay. on what your salary is. And then you would also get a percentage raise as you negotiated. Um, in the 2000s, it's become much more difficult. I think the last few years that I, I taught, that was during the Depression, 2008 or whatever, uh, there was no raises. We were lucky they didn't take, well, they actually did take some things away. So uh, there's definitely been a loss in salary compared to what I had, say, 20 years ago. Um, and it's not just salary. There's also a loss, I think, of respect from um, some of the state politicians. And, Jim, I'm not talking about you. <laughs> Get him! <laughs> uh, but there's been a lot of um, negativity, especially from a couple of our governors. So when you have a situation of not good pay and this negative feeling, sometimes it's hard to go to work. It is. We became the scapegoat. We, we became, we became the, scapegoat. the scapegoat for everything that they thought was wrong, which really wasn't. But so we went for eight years, John. I think we went eight years without a raise. My base pay stayed the same for eight years. But we pay for our insurance and everything, so that all went up. So I made less money. And this, so you, this you, year's our I, first year. I want to year. make sure people hear that. You made less money for eight years to teach. Yes. And I don't, and then, you know, we don't. Um, I, we are fortunate at our school. We get $125 um, in April, end of April, and I can choose what I want for $125 for my classroom for the whole next year. So I have to decide what I think I'm going to use. Um, and that's it. So anything else I want for my classroom, thank you, Tony. Mm -hmm. um, comes out of my pay. I'm scoping out the pencils here, actually. <laughs> thinking you how, many, how many I could fit in my purse. <laughs> um, so we are fortunate that for that, that we have that, that we get to at least buy some supplies. The rest come out of our own pockets. We also, and your school is the same, have a very high poverty rate. So we buy clothes, we buy shoes, we buy backpacks, we buy lunch boxes, we pay for lunches, um, we pay for school supplies that they don't have, and that all comes out of our pockets. We pay for all of that. Zach, uh, and I, you can get to what you're saying, but real quick, but I think that's a, a great point. What are some of the barriers that you have in education, just like Chrissy was talking about, that aren't just 
okay, kids, now it's time to learn. You have to do lots of things before you even get to that point, right? Yeah, well, I think what I was going to say and what maybe answers this question partially too, um, I think teachers, sort of the pressure that exists for them from outside of the profession is large. And um, if you, I mean, if you consider that class of 30 students, there's probably, um, statistically, there's, you know, three kids that are going to have a, a mental illness, like actual mental illness. There's probably uh, three or four that have an individualized education program. Um, there's, there's probably statistically one or two that, that are on a behavior plan. So, so you're walking into maybe a fifth grade class that has kids that are functioning at a second grade level through a probably eighth, ninth, tenth grade level. You have kids that are pr probably students with autism or, um, I mean, we have students that are um, ODD or have um, screen dysregulation disorder or all those types of things. Um, and your job is to make sure that they can uh, you know, pass this test that, that are, that are uh, these standards that are put out there. Um, when, when they walk in the door, well, we're feeding them breakfast now, so they have at least breakfast, but, um, you know, they've had the same clothes on for several days, and they may have wet the bed the night before, and they, they didn't have food. You know, th all of those sorts of things are happening, and no kid is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, no kid's going to learn if, they're, if they don't look okay, if they don't smell okay, if they're not well-fed, and those types of things. So, it you know, it's the same thing that exists where teachers are, are doing all that. We're, we're sending food home on the weekends. You know, we're, all of that kind of stuff is happening. We're giving uniform. We're actually washing students' clothes at school right now. So, you know, a kid comes in and we notice three days in a row it's the same stuff. And I'm taking it back to the cafeteria because we have a washer and dryer and we're, you know, we're washing clothes. And so, again, if I come in and I know I'm dirty or I know I smell bad, I'm concerned about that all day. I'm not concerned about whatever it is that you're teaching me. So you have to get past all of those types of things before you can ever educate kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John. John, uh, tell him the uh, John had a great program that he ran at Laporte or at Rolling Prairie. Sorry, uh, that Whoa. I mentioned in the in his biography. <laughs> but this, I think, is a, a symptomatic of a lot of things that often happen in education. So, John, you can maybe tell that story. So, decided that uh, I was going to start a tutoring program for a lot of reasons, and I dealt with a lot of kids that Zach was talking about. And um, there was a couple of reasons I started the program. I, I really wanted to see if I could actually develop a program where I could get everyone to function in fifth grade math. And I certainly wanted to help those students that were really, really struggling. And I um, did it for six years. The first year was um, horrible. We did some adjustments, and then it came pretty darn successful. And by the last three years, everyone in our uh, fifth grade was passing ICEP tests, everyone. I think we had 99%, 100%, 99%. And to the pay, which is the interesting story. I did not set the pay. Uh, I went an hour and a half early to school each day, and I was paid $37.50 a day to do it, $25 an hour, which was fine with me. And um, after a year or two, the assistant superintendent said, you know, we're, and again, this was during the hard times, you know, we're really struggling. Sorry, man. <laughs> we were really struggling with money, and he said, we're going to have to lower it to $25, but you don't have to come in that first half hour when you prep. And I'm like, do you not get it? I have to come in to prep. So it was $25 still for the hour and a half. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm going to put my hand here so I don't hit it. There we go. There you go. So um, that's fine. 
The next year, the same guy called up and he said, hey, it needs to be $20 an hour. And I was getting close to retirement again. I'm like, okay. And believe it or not, the last year, he said, um, $10. And I said, I tell you what I'm going to do for you. Uh, I'm not going to tell the kids I'm not going to be here tomorrow. Uh, and you're in charge. You know what? He called back in the afternoon. And he said, you can have your $20. But that's how much they value, and it was a program that everyone knew was good. And so we're talking a, a two thousand dollar investment over the course of the year. Yes. To get ten to twelve kids. Oh, well, it was actually many kids came actually through the year. There were twenty-five to thirty kids. Twenty-five to thirty kids to pass the I step yes. test. Yes. And that, other things. And other mm -hmm. things, and they couldn't find money for it. That's correct. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to um, talk about real fast. We have a, you were talking all this sort of about pay and, and merit pay and all that kind of stuff. I think there's another side to it too, where, um, or maybe it's sort of the same side. We have, we have a teacher in our district who teaches sixth grade and he will, he literally passes every single student. I think last year, one kid in his sixth grade math class didn't pass. He teaches all the math in, in that school every year. I mean, he, he's one of the most phenomenal people that you will meet and, and you can learn from. So every year this happens, he's passing 99% of his kids every year. Student support services kids, kids like students, everybody that takes the test over and over and over, right? So um, he's, he's making the same amount of money that the teacher who's passing 35 or 40% of their kids every year over and over and over. And again, there, all those barriers exist and all, we have to address all of that. But also, here's this person who's like... There's, what's the upside for me? You know, like I get it. Um, he's dominating, and it, it's sort of it's seen the same as what everybody else is doing. All right. So we have uh, lots of great questions that you guys have sent, um, and please do keep on sending them in. And we're going to get to your questions now, and um, and we'll we'll uh, go from there. So uh, panelists, you can answer these. Anybody that wants to, but. Um, how has standardized tests like I-STEP impacted the curriculum at the elementary level, and how has the testing impacted the students versus how has it affected the teachers? I just think it's pressure, like the, the pressure that exists for both, for teachers' performance, because your school's performance is based on that. And, and I mean, I, my, my daughter's in third grade and she's already nervous about I read because she knows it's this big test that she has to pass it to go. I mean, you know, this is what we're, this, this is what it's come to. We have kids that are nervous and anxious and have anxiety about, I have to pass this major test because we're assessing one time on this set of standards to tell you whether or not you're a good student or not. It, the pressure is immense on the kids, on the teachers. And like Zach said, you have in your classroom seven IEPs, four... What's an IEP? Individual education plan for those that are uh, some struggles in certain areas. You'll have four with um, emotional disabilities. You'll have three that have been bounced around from house to house. But you have to make sure those kids all pass because not only is it your... The kids have to pass. You want them to pass. Your pay, your school's grade, your corporation... So there is so much pressure to put on a test, mm. a test that does not show you what those kids know. I, I would go along with that, too. And I, when I was there, I felt like there was a great amount of pressure on the principal. Do you, oh, yeah, do you the feel principal. a lot of pressure? Yes, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, <laughs> there, isn't a, there isn't really a second of the day that I'm not considering that because I'm going to be assessed based on all those things. And then the perception is, um, you know, what's your school letter grade? And that's sort of how we're going to judge you. And, and so that, yeah, that weighs on you every, every day for sure. When we had a, a conferences, a lot of time, uh, teachers meetings, there's the strategies of what we were going to do. And the principal, and she was a great principal, she was really concerned that we were going to meet those goals and that we were going to get the right grades. And we didn't want to be an F school. And it's really tough. Right. The, the Whoever new, came up with the grades. Not a big fan. Not a not big fan. Not at all. The new, the, new, <laughs> the new assessment, like if you go online, look at iLearn. I mean, all this stuff is out there now. But the, the fifth grade English language arts section what they're asking kids to do now, on the, um, it's called a performance task. Um, they're giving them four passages. They have to synthesize the information in all four pa across all four passages and do um, writing tasks with them. Some are shorter questions, but one longer. So um, before it was like you read this, you're answering right there questions. And now they're, it, it's literally four texts that they're reading and synthesizing information and to sort of come up with this research question that they have to answer. And even in third grade, it's multiple passages. It's only two. But once you get to fifth grade, you're talking four. I mean, that's, I could hand that to you all, and it would be difficult for us to process. I don't even know what synthesizing information is. So. <laughs> and don't think that K-1-2 is out of it. Because in New Prairie and other, I mean, every school corporation has, we have to do what's called NWEA. And we have to show growth on that to a certain amount. And if we don't meet it and we have to set goals and we don't meet those, then you're not effective as well. And that test encompasses anything from kindergarten to second grade. So my kindergartners could be answering some second grade questions. So it's not easy either. Chrissy, I'm sure for you too, um, it all depends, too, if a child has been through preschool or not. And, if, and so you have kids probably coming in and, you know, at the first... I run the gamut. I have those that are already starting to read. Mm -hmm. And I have those that don't even know they have a name and what their name, what the letters are in their name. So we have every extreme trying to get them ready for first grade. Mm -hmm. And then so what we do um, at Rolling and, and New Prairie is we have uh, balanced literacy, literacy and balanced math so that we are addressing each one at their own levels and doing differentiated instruction. So it's not like you just get to come in and teach one thing. So it's so ridiculous to be grading schools because they're not the same. You just can't compare them. Anyone with any common sense, if you would walk and look at some of the schools in South Bend and then compare it to the neighbor school, Penn, how can you judge them and give them this? It's just it's beyond belief. Um, I have written and emailed everybody down at the state, please come and yes. spend a week in our school or three days and see what we do because they make all of these decisions without stepping a foot into schools it's, it's of different schools. In fact, Jim, this is way before your time, I'm sure. <laughs> no, you could throw them under the bus. It's fine. Um, <laughs> One of them had the audacity to ask why we had to have snow days up here. They had no idea that we had snow up here. But don't they, don't they cancel school if there's like a strong frost? Down, down there? there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we're like four to seven inches. We can, two hour delay, we'll make it. I mean, yeah, so. What has this done? So you've got grades for schools, okay? And they just came out, I think, actually, not too long ago. 
Yeah, great for schools. You also have open enrollment in Indiana. Is that, is that used often as a competitive thing then? Like to say, okay, go to this school instead, they're an A school. Instead of this school, it's a B school. Do you see that, Zach? Are you guys getting a lot of people that are leaving Michigan City schools or? So yeah, I mean, there's, there's competition now everywhere. So, um, so school districts that aren't Michigan City, the surrounding school districts, um, will advertise to our students um, at the high school level, middle school level, and it trickles down to elementary when like the honor roll lists come out, those parents will get mailings from the surrounding districts wait, wait, to so, 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 ask so what, for those uh, kids hold on, to hold on, come hold on. to that district. <laughs> so you're saying that schools send out mailers to your honor roll kids to come to their school now? Yeah, so it's super competitive, yep. I didn't know that. New Prairie doesn't send those out. <laughs> do you want to throw, do you want to throw them under the bus? Which ones are? Yeah. Oh my god! Get your picks, pitchforks, guys. <laughs> no, but it's it's happening. It's 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 certainly happening. What has open enrollment done to Michigan City schools? Uh, I mean, enrollment has declined over the past few years. This year, it's actually increased again. Um, I think largely uh, the programs that exist and um, some of the offerings, especially at the high school level. Dual credits, we're graduate, we have more dual credit offerings than almost anybody in the area. And kids are graduating high school with associate's degrees and you know, there's some different academies that exist that are super top notch. And I think that that momentum has brought families back. There's a Promise scholarship there. So if you own a home in Michigan City, it pays five or $6,000 to, to, to your, um, if you go in state college, uh, that sort of thing. So. Uh, it has it has leveled, but then so what it does cause is um, families think, well, I'm going to go to Westville or New Prairie or Laporte, and it's going to be better there, and so they leave, and then they spend two months there, and they're like, oh, it's not really better, and then they come back, and so now you have this, we we see this bouncing effect where they're back and forth, and they'll try it here, and they go there, and so if you look at the research on that, it's terrible for kids. Any move sets them back, and um, it's so that's really that's difficult. what we found. We have open enrollment. We've actually had to close our open enrollment this year for all the elementary schools because we were full. I mean, over 500 kids, but we have found that they usually not you know for the most part not all, but most of the open enrollment is they've had a problem with a teacher or a principal at another school, so they think they're going to come to another school and it's going to be different, except for it's usually not the teacher or the principal. It's the student or the family or whatever. So it's then it's not better, and then you're dealing with trying to get those problems solved as well. Plus, they have to provide their own transportation. When you're out of district and you do open enrollment in New Prairie, there's no bus that's gonna come get you. So a lot of times then they're tardy or they're missing school. Westville sends two buses to the Walmart parking lot in Michigan City and buses kids from that parking lot to Westville. And in South Bend, I believe uh, LaVille and John Glenn do the same thing. Um, how much money transfers with each student when they go from one school corporation to another? That's changed. So it used to be there was a count at the beginning of the year and then the money was set. So um, what would happen is uh, kids would be in a certain place, and if they transferred after that date, the money stayed at the school where they started at. So we would get, I mean, sort of, so what happens for, for me is um, tax time, there'll be a big influx of kids, you know, there's sort of a big shuffle of kids. So previous to what's happening currently, um, if the kids weren't there with us at the beginning of the year, we didn't get any money for them. So I could gain 50 kids and no funding for those 50 kids. Now there's two counts. So at least there's a beginning of the year count and a middle year, it's in February count, that 
offsets some of the movement of kids. Um, especially with certain private schools, they would hold the kid until after the count date and then put them out and we would take them in and not get any of the funding. And that was sort of the pattern of, I mean, if we're being really honest, that's just what would happen. So about how much money is it lower per year? Is it 7,000? I don't know that. I don't know that the, it's in that range somewhere between yeah. six and a half and seven and a half, I think is what it is. And the reason I ask, I see each year that South Bend is losing several hundred students. So you're talking big time money. Yeah, when I, I, those years I taught in Gary every year when they were losing students, I mean, they were, they ended up, you know, I think there's still 20 some odd million dollars. And so that's all enrollment. Those kids leave, the money goes with them. And then you're left with teachers that you can't pay in buildings that you can't fill. Right. Um, so with all that good news. Um, <laughs> but we do love teaching, I promise. Uh, no, this is a, this is a great question. The getting good quality teachers is really important. And we've talked already that, Indiana has a hard time keeping teachers. For those, uh, this is a question that came in, for those that are thinking about becoming teachers, what advice would you give them? Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Okay. Yeah. Um, you'll love it. It's, relax. Take every day, one day at a time. Enjoy it. Use humor. It's, uh, humor is my game in kindergarten. And enjoy it. Just enjoy the kids. Don't worry about all the other stuff, even though you have to. It's kind of hard not to. But it really is the best job there is. There really is. But I understand because you can't live. Had I been a single mom with just the, my two older girls, you know, had not had Tony, as a teacher, I would have qualified for free and reduced lunch and textbook assistance. That's how much money a professional is making as a teacher. So I know it's hard, but it is worth it. It is worth so it. So I did live that. I mean, our, my family was on Hoosier and all that because when I was teaching just because of the amount of money that teachers don't make. So, yeah, you, you, so it was, you, you technically, according to the state, you were a teacher, but you qualified as in poverty. Uh, we were also in poverty. Right, Monica? <laughs> I think so. Um, I have conversations with people conversations with people about that a lot. I mean, we, we have people that come in to sort of observe and that sort of thing. And um, I, I mean, I honestly think if you if you don't if you're not really passionate about it, don't you you shouldn't do it. I mean, again, the, the burnout rate is you know 50% of our my new teachers will be gone in five years. If you're a student support services or special ed teacher, it's like under two years now is the burnout. So, I, I mean, it's, I'm sure there's moments and seasons where your passion has to be the thing that's fueling you, right? Yeah. And I think what's changed is you don't have people that are, are 40 year teachers, you know, like uh, hopefully I'll be at this place for, you know, the next 30 years. And, and so, because I think there's lots of value that comes with that. But I think what, what generally happens is you don't, you don't get those people that come and stay anymore. You get, I'm going to do this for a short time and I'm at, either I don't like this profession I'm leaving or I'm going to bounce to another place that's, that I think is going to be better. But I agree with Zach. If you don't have the passion, it is the only thing that gets you through. At times, it truly is your passion for kids and nothing else. I would agree, too. I love teaching. Uh, passion's really important. The one thing I would tell students besides what was already said is um, teacher mobility is not very good. So you need to find a corporation you want to be in because it's very, I think it's still difficult, isn't it? Has no, it because easier? you don't, yeah, there's no extra pay for years of, of like, if I taught 
18 years and I wanted to go to Pine, um, they don't have to pay me necessarily anything for my 18 years. So when I was teaching, teaching mobility, it was almost impossible. Um, schools would prefer to hire someone at a lesser amount. In other words, a rookie teacher. So you basically couldn't move. So you really needed to find a corporation you wanted to be in because that's where you're going to be. Has that changed some, Zach, or not? I think it ha only because there's a shortage of teachers now. So mm -hmm. um, if, if I have applicants, the district offers a certain number of years that I can honor on the pay scale. It's not 18, but there are some. Five. So it's more than five. I think it's seven or eight, actually. Um, so w with the shortage, I think pe you, have to, you, have to be, you have to be willing to have those options open. The last time I was on a, a selection committee, we had maybe 100 applications, and principal and super said you could pick out whatever five or six you wanted to talk to in an interview, one year experience or less. Which is kind of crazy because you think yeah. if, if you're at the high school level and you say, okay, this teacher over here at John Glenn wants to move into Laporte, their scores are fantastic, they're a great math teacher, they've been teaching for 20 years. But no, because no. they're going to be too expensive. Too much money. Is, yeah. That's different. Unless they coach basketball. That's the way, you, that's the way, <laughs> it, that's the way it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like science and math now, they're negotiating contracts at the high school level because there's a shortage. So because actually, it's desperate. Okay. Yeah, so the teacher can negotiate. There's some negotiation that's actually happening on that level. Or, awesome. Or a, or a business, te you know, I don't know business per se, but there's, there's certain areas that are harder to hire. So there, those... Those people have more leverage. They have a little more at the, at the high school yeah. level, for sure. Okay, um, let's talk about parents. We've got some parents, obviously, in here of elementary kids. What is the best kind of help a parent of a student can give? I have some parents out here in the audience. <laughs> you know what? Te first of all, just basic life skills. You don't know how many kindergartners are even still for. Tie their shoes. Please teach them how to tie their shoes. Is that um, why we have Velcro? Yeah, no. <laughs> yes, but you don't really, you know, when you're 21, want to wear Velcro tennis shoes. Um, but self-help skills, putting on a coat, following some directions, following directions, following through. Um, schedule. Those kids just need a schedule. They need those boundaries. And those are just, that itself would help. But support the teacher. Support the teacher. Don't come home and go, okay, what did your teacher say today? You know, I mean, don't be knocking the teacher. Support the teacher. Because it used to be the child got in trouble at school. Oh, my goodness gracious, you're in double trouble at home. What did you do? Now it's, well, what did the teacher do to make you do that? You know, it's blamed a lot on the teacher now and not the student. Mm -hmm. And um, so support the teacher. Hey, what can I do to help? And And I know that we are. We have... Email, Google Classroom, um, Remind Message apps. We used to give out our personal phone numbers, but now we can our cell phones and everything can be subpoenaed in any kind of court case. So we don't give those out anymore because I I kind of like having my cell phone, and they'll take the whole phone. And so, and we get involved in more court cases now than we ever have, which is not fun either. But um, yeah, support the teacher. There's not a lot of teacher support anymore. You guys have anything to add to that? I have the same thing Chrissy said, except as a fifth grade teacher, you have to start letting your kids make mistakes. Uh, the helicopter parent, again, don't you know, try to make your kids perfect. They're not. Um, let them grow up. 
I would yeah. say it's this just be, being social, um, talking with your kid, you know, especially young kids. Look at the, the green squishy chair instead of, right? I mean, they, like, they it's do. just, it's, it's human interaction um, on the most basic level. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, they just don't even know this is what they've been given. You know, instead of go get your pink coat, go put on your blue shoes. They come to kindergarten now not even knowing their colors. I can add one more thing. As a parent starting in fifth grade and then on, I think really encourage your uh, children to participate in some extracurricular activities, clubs, sports, 4-H, whatever it is. And that's a great way for, uh, to start some interaction. Also, p part of where social-emotional learning happens too, right? I mean, a lot of these things, sports, clubs, is where you learn some of these virtue-based things that we talked about before. Yep. Um, how do social media and bullying impact your schools? So I deal with a lot of um, cyberbullying. So, so um, largely it's not happening during the school day, but it affects the school day. So the law and all that um, suggests if it has a substantial disruption to the school, then the school takes action from it. So, um, I mean, it's, um, it's threats, uh, it, it's intimidation. It's a lot of those types of things are going on pretty regularly. Um, so it's increased, I would say, last three, four, five years. Why? Sure. Um, I think access to technology. Every single kid has a cell phone. Every single kid is playing Fortnite, uh, you know, with all of their friends, and they're talking across devices and that sort of thing. So, um, and I they have no empathy, or they lack empathy, and they don't. Also, I think it's it's impulse control. We see tons of impulsivity, which is symptomatic of the narcissism and the loss of empathy, all that kind of stuff. So, so. I, they don't have the ability to go like, I'm going to wait to send that. Let me think about it for a second. Instead, it's, it, it's sent and gone, and there's no taking there's that There's such great data and studies that suggest that uh, the path to success and whether you are successful is whether or not you have the ability to, do, to de delay gratification. You know what I mean? And that's, I think, part of that is teaching your kids to be able to delay gratification that you don't, you don't have to have that win. You don't have to have that thing. You don't have to have that, that moment even. So Yeah, I am. Um, Another thing I would say to help, also two things, and Taylor will tell you she's tired of hearing me saying this about Claire. Read to your children. Read, read, and read. Let them read. Let them just pretend to look at the, make up a story. But read, 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 because you will not be able to do anything in this world without being able to do some reading and understand what you're reading. But also, go outside. Go outside and play. We have what's called a Minds in Motion set up in, uh, up on our stage because there's this little part in your inner ear called the vestibular, and kids don't go outside and play anymore. They don't go rolling down a hill. They don't do that, and that vestibular controls a lot of their impulse behaviors and everything. So our classes go up and do this minds in motion maze where they have to stomp and put that pressure on their feet and roll, do log rolls and things like that, and that helps, shows great help in being able to focus and get work done. But most of these kids have not been outside playing. Yeah, we, so we do Minds in Motion. We also have a sensory room now, which is new to us. There's not tons of empirical data on how it works, but uh, as far as education is concerned, but for all the impulse control it does. So we, we have a, a large amount of students that have scheduled time where we have a treadmill, we have an exercise bike, we have a trampoline, we have um, some other tactile things that they, they would deal with. There's a dark room. Um, so all of those kind of things. Our um, occupation and physical therapist will put together a sensory diet is what we call it. 
And so those kids are scheduled into that room throughout the day um, to help impulse control, basically. So Nate, you ask how education has changed from mm -hmm. when I started teaching? Just listen to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, would, they, they didn't have that? <laughs> I don't think so. We, when I started teaching, we didn't have special ed. Really? Really. So when I started, so I have 465 kids started this year, and I haven't looked at the data recently, but I had 96 kids on a, some sort of individualized education program. Do you so think then, that's good or bad, though? So, I mean, so... What's, um, what's the pluses yeah, and negatives? Does because, that include speech, as your speech yeah, kids sure, as well? Yeah, sure, yeah. That's, yeah. That's everybody. And, and I have the moderate population, so, they, so that's part of them, too. But um, so... The good part is, by law, I'm required to give them those services. So, so for sure, they're going to get serviced based on whatever their needs are. Um, we, the model has changed in our building. So it used to be special ed was pull out, pull out, pull out, because we're going to teach them at their, their level, basically. And then you're never closing gaps. And so we're co-teaching. Um, so we're pushing a teacher, a second teacher, into the classroom with those students that need the extra support. So they're getting grade level content with the support of another teacher in the classroom. Um, it's largely, we've had lots of success with it. So uh, there's certainly good things that go with that. Um, funding becomes the problem because you can't co-teach in every classroom. So then you get into logistics where I have basically a 50-50 class with students with IEPs and students without, and what point does that tip and those sorts of things. So I think um, we have way more students right now that have speech and language IEPs because no one's talking to them. So we, I mean, our kindergartners, it is crazy the amount of kids we service yeah, for speech I and have, language. Uh, in my classroom alone, I have 11, uh, uh, 25. 11 out of 25 have speech. So, and have you seen IABC. that in your 18 years, the yes. difference in yes. uh, speech quality and how? Oh yes, oh yes. And the other side of that is receptive language. So it's not just that they can't, they don't, they can't form the sounds and, and do the speaking part of it. It's that they can't process what you're saying to them. So the, so it's the language reception part of it too. So you have the kids that can't understand it, but then they can't, they can't articulate it on the back end either. So then you have so you know, a big problem. Read to your children, have conversations with your children. And if you expect that education is only going to happen when the, our, our students or our kids are with you guys, then it's going to be a very minimal view of education, right? Educate your kids at home, right? Absolutely. Um, talk about colors. Talk about numbers. Talk That's about where it starts. And yeah. parent. And parent. Parent, yeah. because we've become the parents as well, or we end up parenting the parents on a lot of kids. The I get. Um, well, they won't now. Homework, if any of my kids are listening, is mandatory in kindergarten, but it's not. <laughs> so, but they'll say, I can't get them to do their homework. They're five. What are you going to do when they're 13? So, um, well, they, you know, they wouldn't put on their coat. They're five. You're the parent. So they, uh, they're calling and asking us a lot of questions of how to parent or messaging us how to parent. So I think, uh, you know, maybe we need to look at some parenting classes, some parenting things in our schools because... Parents are not even, they're kind of having a hard time parenting sometimes. Yeah, we get a lot, well, I'll get a lot of that where it's like, well, they're at school, can't you take care of it? No. Um, when I started in Gary, they, well, I'm not, it's probably still happening, they, we, they still paddled. And so um, largely when I would talk to parents, they would say, have you paddled them yet? I'm, your kid is 12. Like, that's not a joke. I'm not kidding. No, he's as big as me. I'm not paddling him. Like, he might turn this around. I, 
I can't. The first week of school, I miss Hardy. She asked me to come into the hallway and she said, I need a witness. And I was like, somebody needs a witness. Like, what's she talking about, right? She needed me to watch her paddle somebody. Like, I'm not even kidding you, right? That was, so when you call the parents, they were like, did you pa-? No, I didn't paddle them. You know, so I think it's culturally for me, that's sort of still the mentality is like, what did you do? Did you, and I'm not, I can't do that in Michigan City, but it's sort of still that same thinking and mentality where... Yeah, I, parent, I had a, one you know, um, ask me if I could tell them that their dog passed away. No. I can't even tell my own kids when their animals passed away. I'm not telling them this fight, that I'm going to... And that was like at 8 o'clock, or, you know, when they Did got there, 8.45. Tony, Tony will do it. Tony will do it. He, listen, he hey, doesn't... Hey, your dog's dead. I'll see you. <laughs> He's not allowed in my classroom. <laughs> no. And I said, no, I'm sorry. You'll have to tell them when they come home. I... I'm not going to spend all day with your child, and I've just told them their dog has passed away. <laughs> and uh, no, I just think they've kind of put, you know, they've forgotten my job is to teach your child. Mm-hmm. You know, not, I'm not their parent, even Z- though we are. Zach, do you think there's too many kids in special ed and they may be put there for testing advantages? So um, I think. If you're talking globally, probably yes. We really filter through RTI. Um, we take our time to make that decision as a committee. If there's a, if we see a deficiency that we think we can sort of target and solve through s- student support services, then we'll qualify them. What iLearn has done now is basically taking away most of the accommodations and allowed every kid to get those. So there's, it's not timed anymore. Um, there is no real read aloud part except for on math. So they, they've taken away the calculator accommodation. So okay. they've sort of leveled that to, part to of it make off. Sure you can't. Yeah, I think so. I think partially uh, there's, there's also a shift from RTI to um, MTSS, which is multi-tiered support systems. And so they're basically saying every kid needs what's good for that kid too. So how are we going to make that happen? And so that's the next shift is sure we're qualifying and identifying all these kids, but if, best, if, if what we're doing for them is best practice, we should be doing it for everybody anyway. And so there's this, how are we gonna make that happen? Yeah, I would say, John, compared to when you and I were both you know, there, um, RTI has completely streamlined the amount of kids that actually get tested for special ed services. I will say, so statistically though, um, 1975, 5, 000, one in 5,000 kids were diagnosed with autism. 2014, it was one in 68. They think now it's about one in 45. Um, and so I, I think that there are bigger struggles that are happening now. I mean, we, I, again, I have, I have students that are bipolar. I have um, schizophrenia. I have OCD. I think those are legitimate mental illnesses that exist, and we have to have a plan in place for those kids. And that's happening more and more and more. More oppositional defiance disorder. I talked about screen dysregulation disorder, which is just addicted to screens, basically, is what it is. Um, and, and students with autism, there's this whole new wave of research about virtual autism where um, basically students present the characteristics of autism when you take away the screen entirely, largely those characteristics disappear. And so, um, again, we're sort of on the front edge of all of that kind of stuff, but I think we're, kids are really struggling with things and we need to have those plans in place, but it's not, it's less often because it's a, because it's, we're really good at, at labeling or, or understanding if it's a specific learning disability or mild cognitive disability or, or moderate cognitive disability. Um, 
it's these other things that we're trying to navigate, oppositional defiance and OCD and um, you know, screen dysregulation or bipolar. Or uh, Zach, on the screen dysregulation, I mean, it, that, that, that goes back to parenting too, right? Because you, you've allowed your child to have so much access that now it's... It's an addiction. We, you know, sure. we, we, it, does, it does change the wiring in their brain with yeah. the, you know. Sure. And, and, and I mean, the research on, on, on the screen is um, it's, it's dopamine. So basically, it's the same as if you're on drugs. So if you're going to let the kid do it, they're going to do it because it feels great because there's dopamine in your body and that's awesome. And so that's why people are hooked on drugs. It's the same difference. So um, th I think the good thing about that is kids' brains, well, everybody's brains, the, the research is new on this too, like with neuroplasticity and, and all this kind of thing. You, you, can change, you can change your brain. You can, you can rewire the way that your brain functions. And so if we can understand some of that for, um, for educators and with adults, then we can largely influence the way and the things that we do with kids in classrooms because it's not fixed. We can, we can sort of change the, those things for kids. Let's get to some more questions here. Why do schools um, in, like, in Carmel get more money than schools suffering from poverty, Zach? I don't know exactly, and I could be wrong. I, I probably shouldn't start talking about it because I, I know enough to be dangerous, and that's all. I think a, a lot of it's the funding structure. That's where it's really yeah. It's fun to talk when we don't yeah. know much. That's about <laughs> I, right. I think it's the funding structure. So like, they, they changed that several years ago, and it has to do with the ta how much the tax collection is. So in, in places like Carmel, tax collection is going to be super high, so that pot of money is going to exist there in a place like Gary, it's, it's 50% tax collection, so it's much less money. So I think it has to do with some of the local funding on that and how, how it works with the state. I don't know for sure. So if you have a larger tax base, you, the schools are going to be more better funded anyway. So do you think schools in poverty should get more tax money? John, do you think? I absolutely think so. I mean, obviously, when we have problems with other issues, we pour the money in to solve the problem, but in education, we give the schools and the corporations that um, have less problems, they get more money. It just really doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna disagree, I mean that. You know. uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. I, I think, I think it, it needs to be specific about that money, though. It's not just like, here's more money, do what you want. I think there, we still have to be accountable to, like a lot of the services that would, if we could have mental health services, like we're tacking that on with the extra money and that would by and large make a huge deal. And we have, um, we have partnered with, New Prairie's partnered with Meridian Services, which would never have been there when you were there. And it sees kids that are having. Yeah, um, so we have Meridian uh, yeah, in our okay, building too. Our, yeah, we but have we don't have enough. We have a waiting list of, of kids to see them and we have one person that comes and so so it's an on-site council we have an on-site counselor. On counselor we yeah. just they just hired a second one for our building so it's the same thing kids are it's basically a designated individual like we have a counselor in our building but he's doing so many other things too that this person is only seeing kids to do counseling sessions That's the same with ours we have a counselor then we have this meridian but now we have this list long and what's so we need another one and so yeah illinois uh just went to this idea that every every i think elementary but i don't know if it's every school but every elementary um, gets not only a, a school counselor but also a social worker because so much of do you like that idea? What do you think about we, that? We have been that's a, been a talk at New Prairie this last couple, last year or two is to get somebody else in there also to help with that social work aspect because that's what actually our counselor is now doing mm -hmm. and um, and so taking up the time for that then seeing kids is working with parents and everything. Yes. Yeah, we have we have a social worker one day a week and it's grant funded so that could. 
sort of disappear at any time. Um, so yeah, the counselor takes on that responsibility. I mean, I can't tell you how many home visits I'm doing to, to sort of manage the social work aspect of things. Especially if you're trying to integrate education with the parents, oops, with the parents as well, because that social worker oftentimes deals with home life and what's going on there too, correct? So, um, is there a better way to assess student progress than we're doing right now? So at New Prairie, we went to, um, this year, started professional learning communities. And so we, every class has um, PLC time when you're meeting with your grade level and you're planning common formative assessments, which are about every three to five days. So you know every three to five days how those kids are doing on what you are teaching on that standard at that time. And so it gives you a better idea of who's getting it. And then when those kids that are not getting it, you, a couple days a week, do what are called success groups. And so a teacher whose class really nailed whatever, let's say, um, from my world, long vowels, short vowels, um, they would take those kids that didn't nail those and do some other things to work with that and then the other teachers and you rotate them around. And so we have a better handle on who is not um, getting what we're teaching at the time instead of waiting a month later. Well, so, they didn't get that. <laughs> I have a question for you, Chrissy. So how much time then do you spend assessing? It sounds like it would be a quite a bit. No, you know, um, the common formative assessment is only about a one, two-minute little blur. Per, per student. For I do it in a small group. Most of them just do it in like a small group, so it does not take long. Or you can even do it in a whole group, but kindergartners like to cheat. So... Um, <laughs> You should teach fifth grade. <laughs> <laughs> so I do small group. But it doesn't take long at all. Not at okay. all. Yeah. And then they, then they develop, you know, um, work together to find a plan. And that's, so that gets them going before they even come to RTI for us to set those goals and work on what needs to be done. Yeah, I think when you talk about that ongoing work sample progress, I think that's the way you assess things is in, a, in an ongoing way, are they making progress, looking at student work samples. The state did a few years ago, um, they're valuing progress, so they're giving points on the report card for how much progress a student made year to year. That's still too long of a time, in my opinion, so I think it's that ongoing way of assessing. Um, so this is a kind of a new phenomenon. Laporte uh, on Monday has our first e-learning day, which means our kids will have a, a technical day at school but they'll be at home, um, and so you need to log into a computer and do your Google Classroom, these kind of things. What are your thoughts on e-learning? We've had it for two years. Yeah. So, um, well, you don't have to add days on to the end of the year when you have snow days, so that's kind of nice. And, uh, you know, we don't require, I, kindergarten, all the grades don't require the whole thing to be on your iPad. You have the Google Classroom is on your iPad. The teacher puts the assignment out there. You actually have not only just your snow day, but two more days to get everything accomplished that's on there. And so it's not that they have to have it done that day. You have three days to get it done. And for us, um, I can talk. I can speak for like K one two. You know, there'll be some writing activities, so it's nothing on your iPad. There'll be reading. There'll be some math. A lot of times teachers will send home an e-learning packet. So if we have an e-learning day, I want you to do this page, one, two, three, or this, do this, this, and this. And then there's apps that we do have them work on. But they're 15 minutes apiece, 15, 20 minutes, and you have three days to do it in. And you just have to check in with the teacher at some point during the day. It could be an email, 
um, on Google Classroom or whatever. But I, I don't mind them at all because they're not all the time. But do you, do you think your kids are actually learning or do you think that's just busy work? Um, I, on the apps, we have, ex, we do not, our iPads are not full of just mm-hmm. random apps. They're very good educational apps. That's all we, you know, and they're, they're um, studied, they're looked into, and yeah, I do most of them. Some of them are going to say, now, every teacher also requires paperwork that mm-hmm. they have to bring back, that they have to do. If you had to read a story, you have to read something and write something about it. Every teacher requires some kind of paperwork that has to come back to them to check and see. And I don't, I, I don't mind it. it. We only have five or six of them, you know. And then after that, we add the days on to the end of the year. So if we've used all five of our e-learning days, then we add the days on to the end of the year. And I don't mind it for a short term. I wouldn't want it every day because then I can't interact or them anything. Because I think our biggest thing as a teacher is those um, relationships. If you don't form those relationships with your students, then you're going to have a hard time on those e-learning days, earning days. My kids want to do their e-learning because they know it'll make Mrs. Surma happy. <laughs> Did you have something? I want to, s- not to e-learning, I do want to say something about that, but um, you mentioned relationships and, and largely at Michigan City, there's been a really strong push in the last few years. Um, if that doesn't exist with kids, then, then it's over, not just in kindergarten, but in eighth and ninth and 10th and 12th grade too. Um, I think that's sort of been lost in society. And so, um, so the, I think that's key. I think the reason that I had success in a classroom is because of the relationships I had with kids, not because I was doing something great or magical in the classroom. I think it's super important. Um, we haven't had an e-learning day yet, so hopefully it doesn't snow next Tuesday and that comes up. All right, good. I guess we're sort of prepared. But um, we're not one-to-one, so it creates a little bit of a different the dynamic. Either, yeah. yeah, so then there's like, so, so do the kids have the devices? Will they log in and get that done? So I'm sort of nervous about that because they do have those days on the back end, but I have to manage at the school level how am I going to make sure that they can make that work up? So mm-hmm. if it is something that's on the computer, I have to have the lab open before or after school or that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting. I think there is some meaningful work that can be done in short bits of time. So e-learning is going to la- take you know an hour and a half or two hours of the day. It's not all day. And I think there's some meaningful things that can happen there. Again, I wouldn't want it to be all the time. I think that, that you just can't replace quality instruction. I think, do you guys do um, professional development on some of those days? Yeah, in the fall, we have uh, our first... It's e-learning, but it's called a flex day. And so it's when they practice, the kids practice the e-learning, but we have professional development. Laporte's doing professional development on their e-learning yep. days. Tons our e-learning days now are solely, other than our flex day in the fall, are solely just weather. I think that, that's a key piece because if, if we can build teacher capacity through professional development and have more, a, a little bit of more time to do that, it'll impact kids more in a meaningful way. So I, so I see some of ours are built in that way where that day is professional development for teachers. All right, so. just 10 more minutes left and I've got a ton of questions, but how does school choice, charter schools, private schools affect uh, public elementary schools? <laughs> I mean, statistically, charter schools perform basically the same as public, sometimes better, sometimes worse, but there's no real benefit. I mean, if you look at the research at large, some states better than others, but um, so I think it's sort of negligible there. 
Sometimes they don't have the same services or same programs, so, so I think you lose out on some of that. Public school at all? Having charter schools in a community? I mean, fu- yeah. If you're if you have a group of kids that go to a charter, you're going to lose the funding for that. So think it, that that'd be the one way I think it affects. Mm-hmm. Funding? Do you think you're also losing maybe some of your better students, more talented students, or students that have better parental support because they get them there, and you may be left with? Is that a possibility? If the charter is doing really well, I think so. But I think largely they're performing basically at the same rate. So, but sometimes parents think it's better, so they. I think that's where you get the bounce. They go and realize it right. isn't, and come back. And then the free choice, likewise, or. Uh, we have, I think, with that open enrollment free choice, um, we also have the bouncing back and forth quite a bit. So that for the child is a hard thing. It's a very hard thing. But as far as us. You know, you just never know, am I going to have 25 kids this week or am I going to have 24? Am I going to have 26? You know, you just never know. We are about the same of in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, I, I, do, I do get a text. I don't, know, I don't know who sends these, by the way. I see your phone numbers, but I don't know who. Um, that I do want to correct something earlier. It says New Prairie did send flyers to their Laporte house about on-roll competitiveness. Oh, there you go. Well, now we know. Um, That's a new one. So you notice teachers don't always know what this, the central office does a lot of times. As a teacher, is it harder to discipline students with mental illnesses? I think it's situational. Like, that's really hard to answer. Sometimes it's much easier. Sometimes it's much more difficult. It depends on age level, capacity of the student whatever the mental illness is, what the relationship is with that student. There's so many different factors that go into it. It's just really dependent upon the situation. And the plans that we have in place for them. We're going to just do a couple of minutes. If you can think of a myth that you'd like to bust with the people here and people listening and watching about elementary public education or your experience as a teacher or administrator for you, Zach, um, think of a myth that people, that maybe you just wish more people knew about that they don't about what you do as an educator. John, do you have one? Yeah, teaching is easy and teachers don't work. <laughs> teachers uh, work, huh? Teachers don't teachers work. Most of the teachers work really, really hard, spend a lot of time before school, after school and weekends. Yep. Yeah, I would echo that. Like I, I usually pull in around six in the morning. There are teachers there before me. We don't take kids till eight fifteen. The nights that I leave at five thirty or six, there are teachers there after me without fail. Saturdays I go in, there's four or five cars in the parking lot. Sundays I go in, there's four or five, six cars in the parking lot. All summer when I'm there, there's teachers there. They, I mean, the, the investment in the time and the energy, um, it isn't like, oh, I came at eight, I left at three, and I didn't do anything else. It just totally doesn't exist that way. Um, I would go with the same thing. Our, our actual hours are 7.55 to 8.25. Um, I'm there at 7.30 because I also have a first grader, so I don't want to get her up that early. But we don't leave until closer to 5 most of the time. And our summers are not off. We're doing professional development. We're attending conferences. Um, I teach summer school. You're doing many things. And we don't get paid during the summer. Everything's we get paid for not teaching. You don't. You get a paycheck because they split it up so that you're not going those three months without a paycheck. But we don't get paid for nine not, months of pay. We get nine months, months of pay over 12 months. But we're doing, um, I'm giving up hours and hours of professional development, and you don't get paid for that, you know, for training. You'll go 
I'll, I'll bend over in Chicago for training over the summer, and you don't get paid for those hours. Any other myths that you can think of that is important for people to know about what you do? Or what you did, Jen? We really want every child to succeed. We are not out to get anybody's child. We really want everybody to succeed. And I think some people think that that's not the case, but we really do. Let's say you're here and your kids aren't in elementary anymore. How can they help you guys? How can the community help you guys? I mean, I think there's some of the obvious, like, um, time. You know, I mean, we're, we have tons of people that come in and tutor, help out, you know, those sorts of things. Um, we're forever collecting, you know, um, uh, uniforms or uh, hygiene thing, you know, stuff like that. So there's money. I mean, it's the you talent, time, talent, money. I mean, I think those, those sorts of investments, I mean... Um, yeah, same. Uh, come in and, and read with kids and peer mentors. You know, we have a lot of kids that do not have a, a family or uh, adults that are there for them. So peer mentors, uh, coats, boots, clothes. Same thing. Um, fifth grade, I, I had several people come in and mentor, and it's you can't. It's hard to explain how valuable it is to those kids. A lot of them just don't have any family at all. And also just helping with school projects. I was looking at Jim Pressel and thinking about all the help that he did with our environmental trail. Pretty much just said, hey, I'll do it. So we'll end with this. Thank you so much for being here. But the last question that we have, and we'll end with this one, is the question we ask at the end of every discussion over dinner is, uh, Chrissy Sherman, what brings you hope? Uh, at school or just all together? Both, either, whatever. <laughs> uh, well, first of all, my family, because they have cut more lamination than anybody should ever have to cut in their entire life and, uh, and not complained about it, maybe a little, but not a lot, and have built things for me and made things for me and listened to me just cry over a student. Um, but my kids, my classroom gives me hope every single day. Because every day is a new day with them. You never know what they're going to say. You never know what they're going to do. Mm. Um, but they give me hope because I have a great class. And I have, a, I have wonderful parents that support them. But I don't, not all of them. And those kids still come to school wanting to get hugs and loves and learn and everything. So, I mean, that just, it's right there. It's all right there. Zach, what brings you hope, buddy? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's those same things where you never, I think the hope is always that you're impacting young lives and, and, and largely you don't ever know what that impact is. And the hope is that you are making a difference. Um, I got an email recently from a kid I taught in Gary who's now a teacher um, in Munster. And it was that like, hey, loved your class. You made an impact however many years later. And that's one kid and that will keep you going forever. You know, So I think that the hope is that you re it really does make a difference. You don't always hear it. You don't always know it. It's thankless, largely for teachers. Um, but, the, but the hope is that you're making a difference for kids. John, what about you, buddy? What brings you? You know what? The same thing. Uh, I've lived a little bit longer, so I've had a chance to talk a lot of my former students and to hear those things. And uh, it makes you feel wonderful. And you know that you've done something good. Um, and you never know what people are going to turn out. Some kids that I had, one kid that I never thought was even going to make it through high school is now a doctor. 
Uh, I've had kids do amazing things. I never expected. I was a person I knew in fifth grade that he'd be a minister. <laughs> Sounds really smart and handsome. <laughs> but and not he a was baseball then too. He had that going for him. And actually, he brought up the yearbook picture. And Janie and I looked at it. He had hair, too, in fifth grade. Pretty much the... He was rocking it. Yeah. God's gift. I take care of it. <laughs> but my husband coached him in Little League. Not a ball player. Oh. <laughs> I? How about answer questions that come to you, Chrissy, and not answer extra um, things? I, I was like Jose Canseco well, of T-ball. I coached him also. <laughs> There were a lot of questions about how I was as a student that I didn't give you, John. I'm not. So also, I had your grade book. I was going to bring it, but oh. I decided that wasn't a good thing to do. Well, thank you so much for being here. Can you give it up for our panelists, please? Thank you so much for those who watched and streamed with us. Uh, come back next month. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation on race and different things like that. If you want to know more about education issues, uh, feel free to, to talk to these guys afterwards. Or I, I want to encourage you to do something that I do with my kids as teachers. Um, don't just contact your teachers when you have a problem, your kids as teachers. Uh, at the end of every year, um, I ask my kids, what did you love about your teacher the most? And then I make sure that I communicate it, because I don't trust that my kids will communicate it to their teachers. Um, I make sure that I thank them for what they do because they don't get paid much. They, they're drastically underpaid. Um, they're, 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 they put out more fires than they're appreciated. And um, it's just a way to, I think, give you guys some currency for what you do um, to hope, hopefully that you know then that the community and parents are behind you guys and what you guys do. So thanks so much for coming. We hope to see you again here next month for our next discussion over dinner. Have a great night.